Welcome to another episode of the AABIP podcast. During the podcast episodes, we discuss unique and often controversial topics in IP. The topics discussed often do not have high-quality evidence base, and we seek the opinion of our invited experts to learn their approach to specific clinical scenarios. The views expressed on this episode or and the podcast in general are not necessarily those endorsed by the AABIP. So for today's podcast, the topic we have chosen to discuss is initial robotic bronchoscopy results, expected slow start or reality check. And for this episode, we have with us Dr. Michael Pritchett, who's the director of thoracic oncology at the Pinehurst Medical Center in North Carolina. Dr. Pritchett is also the current president of the SAB. Dr. Pritchett, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So before we get started, uh, do you have any COI to disclose? Yeah, we'll talk about robotic stuff. So um, I'm one of the investigators in the Precise Trial, which is uh, for Intuitive and consultant for them. Uh, have some um, uh, research with Johnson & Johnson and New Wave uh, and have done their ablation trials. Um, so have some conflict there. Have been involved in the Navigate trial and things like that. So uh, I'm an equal, equal opportunity consultant. Let's get started, Mike, then. So uh, let, let's discuss the few, uh, the few studies that we have with robotic bronchoscopy. I mean, we've had a retrospective multi-center trial that I was part of. Then we've had a couple of studies from ION, uh, where uh, the 29-patient study by Fielding. And then we also have a recently published uh, study from uh, Northern California. And we also have, uh, that's a 55 patients. And then we also have uh, the uh, initial uh, group of the benefit trial, I think that was also about 58 patients. Now, all these studies show a navigation success, slightly variably defined, but of about 88 to 96%. But the yield we get is only about 75%. Why this discrepancy? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that we've seen in just about all of our studies, uh, and it's frustrating, right, to be able to get out there and see something with radio probe uh, and then not come away with an answer. I think that there are multiple answers to that and multiple factors involved uh, with, you know, one thing you hear a lot is that we need better biopsy tools. Um, you know, I think the, the gen cut or the triple needle brush was like the last new thing that came out, but we've had the same needles and forceps and things like that for a long time. I know some people are experimenting with some peripheral, uh, you know, cryo um, and things like that. Um, and, and that may be an answer, but I, I think that that's part of it. Um, you know, we've seen even in the GEX meta-analysis in the past, you know, a localization success rate, uh, you know, above 90%, um, but with uh, a diagnostic yield in the 70s. So, again, I think pathology also plays a role here as well. I think we all agree that not everybody's pathologists are created equal, just like all bronchoscopists aren't created equal. I think there's different sets of skills out there, and it could be something like specimen handling. I, you know, being it, having gone around to lots of different sites and proctoring at different sites for, um, for robotic bronchoscopy, um, it's interesting to see the different techniques that are out there, and I, I firmly believe that that plays a role in some of this as well. Um, you know, I, there's other factors that have to do with yield, such as CT to body divergence, but if you're seeing it with radial probe, 
well, first of all, hopefully you're seeing that and not, you know, a false signal, which uh, could be atelectasis or clot and bleeding and things like that. So I think there's multiple factors involved and a lot of things that we need to work on in terms of tools and preventing atelectasis and reducing CT to body divergence and, uh, you know, improving pathology and things like that. Okay, so pathology, poor tools, and hopefully we are interpreting radial probe images correctly. So uh, what it comes down to in my mind is if we really want to know if we have successful navigation in the absence of atelectasis, we really need cone beam CT, right? Uh, I, I like that answer. <laughs> Obviously, um, I, I'm very biased towards the use of cone beam uh, We've been kind of experimenting with that since 2014 and have done over 500 cases now. And so we've learned a lot with that. Um, we've learned that there is atelectasis, that it's a cause of CP to body divergence. But what we're also learning now uh, with newer studies is that even in the absence of atelectasis, we sometimes see CT to body divergence. And so that's the frustrating thing. Like, you know, hey, I thought this was all from atelectasis. And we're seeing that it's actually from other factors as well that we still have yet to figure out. Oh, well, uh, any, what other factors are you talking about? So, and again, some of those we don't know. So we're looking at some, some uh, data where we've eliminated atelectasis, but we still have CT to body divergence, and that's with a variety of, of modalities. Um, we published some, uh, an abstract at ISLAC a couple years ago that showed that there's divergence even before you put the scope in. So the divergence exists between the pre-op CT and the intraoperative cone beam CT that we did immediately after the patient was intubated. So there was no atelectasis, there was no scope deformation or anything like that because the scope wasn't in the patient. And what we saw is that we can have up to two centimeters of CT to body divergence even just there. So some of it is positioning um, and some of, you know, we, we put out a paper with Chris Badra and a couple other people, um, you know, called virtual reality, which kind of digs into the different causes, but some of it is positional. Um, some of it is the degree of breath hold that they do with their, um, with their preoperative CT scan compared with their intraoperative setting as well. Um, and I, I'm convinced that there's still probably some factors that we even don't understand yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So if we want to get into therapeutics, wouldn't it be ideal to get to the center of the lesion rather than just get to the lesion? So even now, though, yeah, go on, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think ideally. So as someone who's done, you know, microwave ablations in, in patients bronchoscopically, and, and we did that with an edge catheter because that's all we had at the time. We didn't have robotics. And so there are a lot of times where we could not get dead in the center of the lesion and we end up having to do extra ablations. We do something called bracketing where we you know, maybe we end up on the anterior side. So we ablate that side and then we navigate posteriorly and we ablate that side. Um, so now having done that with a robot and animals, I can tell you it's just so much easier to be able to make those very precise movements where you can look at that cone beam CT scan. You can say, hey, I'm seven millimeters anterior. So then you walk over to your robot and you just dial in seven millimeters posterior put your tool out and, and then you're in the lesion. So that combination is something uh, that's going to be critical um, to, to doing ablation in the periphery. And, and that's my point. Uh, so, so this dialing and this precise level of control can only be dictated by a cone beam CT. You can't go off the virtual target and say that I'm anterior to it and now I move posterior to it when you know you could be all over the place 
if you don't rely on cone beam CT or, or maybe in the future, some sort of 3D fluoroscopy. But, but at this point, wouldn't you agree that if we have to venture into therapeutics, where we stand right now, we need maybe a little better version of the current robot and a cone beam CT scanner? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Um, there's, you know, but there's going to be an ablation device basically for each platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the companies aren't necessarily wanting to prove compatibility with the other things. So J&J is going to have their new wave catheter that's only going to be approved for use with Monarch. And Intuitive is going to come out with theirs that's only for that. And Medtronic already has theirs, and that's going to be only for you know the edge catheter. And, and these companies aren't really going to be doing compatibility studies to see if it's compatible with other devices. So that's kind of a limitation. I think it's going to be a while before we get to a third-party ablation tool that that you can use down any device you want. Um, but you're right; you're definitely going to need cone beam CT scan combined with with robots. I think that you can do ablation easily right now with the current robots that we have, but I think there's going to be um, future versions of these robots that get better and better and have less divergence and are more accurate and and, uh, maybe interface with cone beam uh, or other fluoroscopy methods and things like that. So I think you're going to see some improvements there in the software, but I think as it stands right now, uh, with the with the current robots that we have and with Combeam, um, now we're just waiting on the FDA to approve these clinical trials and get started. Mm-hmm. And let's take a step back to diagnostics, because I think that's the larger and more imminent applicability of robots, right? And that's why we were so excited about this technology. So with this 75 to 85% yield with mean lesion size in the two centimeter range, I mean, this 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 isn't what uh, we all really were excited about, right? I mean, uh, the robot was sold to us as, as something where we could hopefully get to a greater than 90% yield. Uh, and that's, so that's at least what uh, people think and I thought. So so what next then? Is this a big setback for robotic bronchoscopy in general? Or you know, maybe is it the initial stage and we expect uh, improvement from here on? Well, I, you know, I think it's early and I think you have to look at each individual study uh, you know, I think if you look at the benefit trial, that I almost view that as a as a learning curve uh, trial because e- each site basically got to use it eleven times. So what I tell people when they're talking about learning robotic is it takes you about ten cases to get comfortable and maybe twenty to thirty to get confident. And so all those people were just to the point where they were getting comfortable, and then it was kind of taken away from. So uh, I'm hoping that you know. Uh, maybe with more cases, they could have done better. And then, you know, in in the retrospective study, you know, we expected to see a little bit better outcomes because that was kind of beyond the learning curve stage, you know, with 165 patients and 167 lesions at four centers, we were hoping for a little bit better data. So I think everybody's a little disappointed. And, and I think that you can, I think you can put intuitive in that boat as well in, in that, you know, they want, robotics to do well in general. You know, if one robot doesn't look good, then that doesn't look good for any of them. It doesn't get anybody eager to look at another robot. So I I think that, you know, everybody wants everybody else to succeed with their technology uh, and and we're expecting better outcomes than what we've seen so far. I think the encouraging thing from the first in human and the intuitive uh, study in Australia was that there was a dramatic difference in median lesion size. So the diagnostic yield was 79% um, and, and into the eighties for malignancy, 
but the average lesion size was 12, 14 millimeters. Um, so much, much smaller than some of the other studies that we're seeing where it's 2.3 or 2.5 centimeters. Um, I think you always have to take that into consideration. And there's plenty of considerations as far as how you define diagnostic yield. Mm-hmm. We could probably do an entire podcast on just <laughs> talking about how to define diagnostic yield in, in studies. Um, so sometimes it's, it's comparing apples to oranges. So if I had to summarize what you're saying, a lot of what we're seeing right now may improve based on one improved software development and two greater use of familiarity with the software and the hardware. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the case. And then I, I think that the, the great equalizer there, so neither one of the robots currently have anything that integrates with real-time imaging. Um, and so you do have some advantages on the, uh, you know, Floronav Illumicite kind of platform because they also recognize that they have CT to body divergence. But now with their tomosynthesis sweep, they have ways to kind of adjust for that. Uh, it's not as good as cone beam CT scan, uh, but it's a step in the right direction in terms of harnessing that power of real-time imaging. And you've got companies like Body Vision who are, who are doing this by themselves, and they're incorporating augmented fluoroscopy and that tomosynthesis spin to get, you know, almost CT-like images. Um, so I think that the incorporation of real-time imaging in addition, in whatever fashion, whether it's cone beam or fluoronav or um, or body vision or whatever, but incorporating real-time imaging into those robotic platforms is really going to be next level. Um, and, and when you can update that information, kind of like you do with Floronav, where you can do your spin, say that's where the lesion is. Even if it's moved from where it was on the preoperative CT scan, you identify where it is, and then you then that communicates with the system and says, okay, I've now updated your position. Mm-hmm. You know that That's really what's going to make things a lot easier. Um, there's also still lots of, what I would call just kind of tips and tricks. You know, there, there's certainly plenty of people out there using both robotic platforms that are having amazing success, better than what we see in the clinical trials. So some of this is on an individual basis and, and there's more tips and tricks that all robotic users need to share with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of those are going to be platform specific, uh, but these user forums that both companies have and, and websites and Facebook groups to share ideas and experiences um, and then that feedback to the companies, uh, and hopefully they take that feedback, um, uh, which thus far they, they really have and made ongoing iterations and software improvements. Um, I, I think we're just looking at the tip of the iceberg here. Awesome. So if I had to push you to one corner and push you to take a side, initial robotic bronchoscopy results, would you say expect it's slow start or just a reality check? Um, I think it's an expected slow start. Um, and again, we, we've really seen, you know, most of the data so far from, from Monarch. I think that when we get the precise trial out, then we'll really see. I know Monarch's got a larger uh, multicenter study with Target. Mm-hmm. So I think everybody's excited to see the results of that. So I, I think it's a little bit of a slow start. Um, but honestly, I'm not worried at all um, about where robotics is going to take us in bronchoscopy. I know for a fact, and I've seen it and experienced it myself, um, that it is, in fact, a game changer. Uh, mm-hmm. It will be time, uh, you know, time will tell, obviously, but I think we'll see that, and then hopefully we'll have some comparative studies, which, you know, obviously everybody wants to do a randomized trial. Whether or not we'll get to that point, I don't know, but um, I don't personally need a randomized trial to show that it's really changed everything for me. 
Yeah, I mean, I think anybody can have great success with certain platforms um, and, and the data, hopefully, depending on how it's done, really is indicative of what the generalizability of a technology is. And so that's Absolutely. one of the hopes, too, is is that robotics can kind of level the playing field a little bit. Um, and, you know, right now the studies are with experts and you know mm-hmm. early users. I think that once we get more studies out or larger studies like a, uh, like a Navigate study uh, or something like that with these platforms, then we'll really truly see how generalizable this is. But what I've seen in my own experience thus far with, you know, proctoring people all the way up to age, you know, I proctored people who are 70 years old and they have no experience using super D or anything like that. And they get on a robot and, and they're like, okay, I can do this. And they do really well, you know, and then they call me three months later, like, Hey, I'm going to go after this eight millimeter nodule. What do you think? <laughs> and then they call me the next day and they're like, I, by the way, I got it. So it's impressive. Um, and, and obviously that that's not everybody, um, but it's encouraging. I'm too looking forward to the Navigate of robotic bronchoscopy a few years from now, but hopefully not the acquire of robotic bronchoscopy. But <laughs> I don't think we want to see that. <laughs> and thank you so much for your time, Mike. Hey, right. Do you have, a, do you have any? Me. Absolutely. Do you have any closing comments? No, I just really appreciate uh, the AABIP asking me to do this, and um, uh, everybody's staying interested in this topic. And um, I appreciate your time. Thank you. We appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you. Take care.